right, great. All right. So yeah, I've written a couple of books on real estate investing. Um, probably one good one at least. Um, and yeah, I had a podcast where I met Scott Smith, in fact, called How to Lose Money. In fact, we what we did is we actually um uh, interviewed 238 successful entrepreneurs, investors, business owners about their failures and pain and agony on the way to the top. Speaking of pain, I've been married for 36, that's a joke, 36 years, got four adult children, used to live in Michigan, not that far from Liz, um, and I am the co-founder of Wellings Capital. We are a fund manager for commercial real estate. So what we do is we go out and vet the very best commercial real estate operators that we can find and then we uh, put them together in a diversified fund, and it allows investors, accredited investors, to invest with us. And then we spread it across these different asset types, geographies, operators, strategies, et cetera. So before we go on, like I said, this is for uh, accredited investors, in, uh, and we, we can only take accredited investors. A lot of these IRRs, internal rates of return, are sometimes at the gross property level and not necessarily the net level to investors. Uh, some of these properties are not uh, available to investors now. Some of these are past case studies. If you do want to learn more about our funds, and I'm not here to advertise that at all, but my disclaimer, people um, say that I should say that you need to look at the PPM and there may be deals that are worse or better and all that stuff. So, um, I am going to briefly talk about our due diligence process. I threw these slides in here at the last minute, and honestly, they look pretty bad. But it it's a reminder that it's really important to know who you're going to invest with. I got three slides here. This uh, it, it's if you want to do due diligence on commercial real estate, you should probably either. Um, you should probably honestly just go get Brian Burke's book. Brian Burke is a wonderful uh, multifamily sponsor. He's got, got he's with Praxis Capital. Maybe he's spoken here before. I don't know, but he's got a book called The Hands Off Investor, where he goes into great detail on how to vet a commercial real estate sponsor and deal. So we like to see folks with a you know a track record, uh, a law, a team. We want to see how they reacted under pressure during the great financial crisis, for example, how their fees are structured, how their debt's structured, how much uh, skin they have in the game uh, themselves. Uh, we'd like to ask about their long-term strategy. We do death by Google. We do, um, uh, we do background checks, criminal checks, reference checks. We actually were way down the road with one one time and found that one of their, you know, one of the operator's best friends and close business partners was charged with a massive felony. And even though he wasn't charged, it just, just made us uncomfortable. We didn't invest with them. We do all kinds of checks online. Uh, we meet them in person uh, in a scheduled meeting, and then we go out and meet them, uh, either meet them or meet their property managers at the property. Sometimes those are unscheduled meetings where we just show up look around, ask questions. We ask about their moral compass. We ask them, you know, we say, hey, we we assume you're going to do the right thing when under pressure, but why do you do the right thing? 
We just want to see how they answer that. We want to see how they treat their staff, how they talk about their investors, how they treat their spouse if, or talk about their spouse, how they treat the waiter or waitress or the flight attendant. We, that's all that stuff's important to us because we got to ask ourselves, you know, would I want to be in a bad deal with this person for the next decade? Because let's face it, nobody, no deal looks bad at the beginning. Nobody plans to go out and lose money, but some deals do go south. We want to see if they're going to be the kind of operator we like to be under pressure with for a very long time if things don't go well. So like I said, Brian Burke's book, The Hands-Off Investor, has a lot more information on the due diligence process for commercial real estate. I'm going to spend a good bit of time on one case study, and then I'm going to go through eight other case studies briefly, one or two slides at a time. And then we're going to throw it open to questions. So this first one, oh no, it's got me in the picture. It was a particularly hot day in Colorado Springs. And this was in front of AAA, uh, AAA Platt self-storage. This asset was acquired um, in, uh, I believe it was 2019. I got the details on another slide. This is an overview of AAA Platt. Now AAA Platt self-storage was run by a property manager that might not have been doing the very best job on behalf of the owner. And it had uh, a retail section where on the green there on the left, and it also had 90,000 square feet of vacant industrial or warehouse space. And then it had all this outdoor parking here on the right. And so this property, um, well, it's, you know, the warehouse, it wasn't in terrible shape, as you can see, but it just had a bunch of old pallets and boxes sitting around. It just, it was vacant. And honestly, uh, commercial real estate, uh, as you probably know, the value of commercial real estate is based on the cash flow and the cap rate, specifically the net operating income divided by the capitalization rate, which is typically between four and 8% the cap rate that is. And that's largely, that's the market's valuation of what the, an asset like this in a location like this at a time like this in a condition like this might sell for. So cap rates have been, you know, honestly trending downward, but since that's the denominator in our equation, the value equals the net operating income divided by the cap rate, a lower cap rate means a higher price. Now, this facility is in the on the east side of northeast side of Colorado Springs and had a lot of other competition around it. One thing we look for when investing in self-storage is the number of square feet of self-storage uh, within about a two or three or four mile radius um, divided by the population. And so we like to see, you know, something like seven or eight square feet of self-storage or hopefully much less than that per person in the three mile radius, because seven or eight is the national average. It's much higher usage in certain places like Florida, Texas, and California, and it could be lower usage in places that have basements and attics like the Midwest, like Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana. But this one didn't look so good. It already, the existing supply was 11.9 square feet of self-storage. You can see there's a lot of red dots on there. 
11.9 square feet. So that was a big strike against it. But it had a lot of other stuff going for it, as we're going to see in a minute. So here are the vital statistics. Uh, this property was built in 1969 originally, then it was added on to for about the next 20 years. The sales price, the acquisition price on this property was $8.75 million for the real estate and then $2.2 million for the business and the intangibles. It was broken out that way um, for various reasons, tax reasons mainly. The building side has a, size had a total of almost 300,000 square feet. The price per square foot, $30, way below the replacement cost. The property size, 26 acres. It had about 879 total usable self-storage space uh, units, and that includes parking spaces outdoors. The income was about $750,000 a year. The cap rate, I mentioned that those range between 4 and 8% often was around 6.8%. So pretty average. Self-storage occupancy was 78%. The vacant warehouse space was one of the reasons this was so compelling, even with self-storage being, you know, uh, in that area being a little overcrowded. The retail space was also a help. So uh, my... Um, uh, we invested, we were the largest investor in this asset, Wellings Capital was. The acquisition price, uh, in, excuse me, the acquisition included $8.6 million in debt. So that's a pretty high loan to cost ratio at 78%, higher than we're comfortable with normally. But there were some things about this one that were very special. The equity that we and others brought to the table was $2.86 million. So it was a five-year interest-only bridge loan at 6.35% initially. Now, I don't think I remember to mention this usually, so I'm going to say it now. That was refinanced for uh, around 4% for a fixed rate, uh, longer-term fixed rate debt after that. And so after it was um, improved. And uh, we're going to see that we were able to return a lot of equity to investors when that happened because the value was improved quite dramatically. I love this quote. And you might think it has nothing to do with my talk, but it does. Uh, Michelangelo, the greatest sculptor of all time, or the most famous at least, said, I saw the angel in the marble and I, marble and I carved until I set him free. So that is thinking, that is talking about the Warren Buffett concept of actually finding uh, innate properties in an investment. It's actually, it's mining for intrinsic value. My operating partner, and you could probably already see, there's a lot of intrinsic value in this asset and specifically almost 90,000 square feet of unleased basically vacant warehouse space that wasn't being used at all. Buffett also, Buffett said, price is what you pay and value is what you get. And so the total price for this, I believe, was about $11 million, including the real estate and the business. But the value, well, we're going to see in a minute that there's a lot of intrinsic value here. Now, I mentioned this earlier, the value formula in commercial real estate, the value equals the net operating income divided by the cap rate. So the question is on this case study, this very long case study, uh, how was value added to this asset? 
And I can't tell you that every self-storage facility will have this much value opportunity, but this one really did. So let's take a look. First of all, uh, Matt, our operator, he increased their occupancy from its initial 78% to over 90%. Now this increased, um, this increase generated approximately $22,000 in additional annual net operating income. Now remember, let's look at our formula here. $22,000 in an increased net operating income divided by about a 6% cap rate. Well, that provided a significant bump in value. And we'll talk about what that value is in a minute, or you can do it, the math on that. Uh, he also increased the rental rates by about 8%, and that generated $69,000 in additional net operating income. Also decreased operating expenses. Um, I mentioned that the prior owner's manager was not doing a great job. They slashed operating expenses by $15,000. So now this NOI, this net operating income is really adding up. But here's where the big home run was. It was leasing all the warehouse space. The, the warehouse space was leased to three different tenants that have multiple doors. And um, that added $50,000 a month in income with no significant, with no increase in operating expenses. That's $610,000 annually. And in addition to that, they added tenant insurance, which added $18,000 annually to the bottom line. So using this value formula, let's see how these five uh, changes impacted the value. And it's, it's pretty staggering, really. So this is theoretical value, by the way, because until the property's sold, this is all theoretical, but it's real. And the banker's appraisal will bear this out. So the increased occupancy, $22,000, um, that translates over to an impact, a value impact of $338,000. Increased rates, 1 million plus. Decreased expenses, uh, 230,000. The least warehouse space, though, six hundred ten thousand a year in income, nine point three million dollars increased uh, appraised value, and then the tenant insurance added some as well. So this increased the total value by eleven million dollars. Okay, that's the appraised value. So if it was about eleven million dollars to acquire this facility, counting the business and the real estate that pretty much doubled the value. This is what a great operator can do for a property like this. But it's really better than that. I mean, it is that. But I mean, remember, let's go back to our vital statistics page. There was only $2.9 million in equity in this. So if that 2.9 million, if you bolt on 11.2 million to that, well, the return to the equity investors is actually quite staggering. And again, that's theoretical return until the property is sold. My friends, this is one of the reasons people want to invest in commercial real estate. Because by driving net operating income, that top line in our value formula, by driving that NOI up through making these strategic changes, we can see a significant increase in the value. Now, is this unusual? Yeah, I got to admit it is. And this is why I took some extra time on it. I've rarely, a, a few times, but rarely seen an asset 
that has so much value baked into a vacant space. In other words, when the seller sold it for $30 a square feet, honestly, he wasn't getting compensated for all that 80 or 90,000 square feet of vacant warehouse space. And um, so it, it, it was just quite a powerful deal. I will tell you that although it's unusually good, there's others that are much better. And if somebody reminds me, I'll tell you the story of the Reno Super Kmart, much better than this one. And this is not something we invested in. So happy to tell you about that. This is AAA Platt today. It's got, he's got actual parking spaces marked out. He's got people instead of just, you know, parked everywhere, they're, they're parked in actual spaces. He's maximized the operation, the in, you know, he's got, he built in a better uh, loading dock area, which cost a little money. And um, from what I've heard from Matt, uh, he's got a potential buyer. So we'll see how this actually turned out. I didn't mention this in the case study, but he actually sold off the leased retail, that 30 or 1,000 square feet or so area. He sold that off for, I believe it was over a million dollars, which he returned that equity. He returned that into the deal as well. So again, giving the equity holders some of their capital back early on. So that's case study number one by far the longest case study. And we are gonna fly through some more case studies now. This next one is also in self-storage. And this one is in Central Oregon, Wellings Capital. Two of our funds were the largest investor in this asset as well. Um, this was acquired for 1.7 million in January, 2018. It was sold March of 21, three years later for 3.2 million. Uh, the property level internal rate of return was 70%. And the multiple on invested capital in about, you know, let's say three and a half years count, uh, total was about 4.3x. And again, that's the equity return, the return on equity at the property level. When it trickled down to us and to our other investors, you know, it was a lower number than that. Um, here is a mobile home park. And I'm sorry it says self-storage there. That's a mistake. But this is a mobile home park in Kentucky. Uh, my partner and I flew out in January 2020, just when people were starting to talk about COVID. We actually saw somebody on the plane with a mask on. And we thought, well, what's that about? Anyway, we all found out quickly, didn't we? Anyway, in January 2020, we flew out there. This was acquired for $7.1 million one week before the stock market tumbled in late February. And um, this property just had so much that could be improved upon. Well, like three of the major five improvements, including passing water and sewer, metering it and passing it back to tenants, uh, including uh, raising the rents moderately, including starting to uh, you know, to fix a bunch of stuff at the property. Anyway, there a lot of that was done in the first 10 months and it was actually sold in 10 months for $15 million. Um, so this was quite a nice return on investment. Uh, had a 347% IRR. That's so misleading. I mean, it's the real number, but it was only, you know, 10 months. So, you know, it's not like it would be 347% a year if it had been held for 10 years, not at all. 
but the multiple on uh, invested capital is 3.4x. And that was a pretty good deal. Here's one in Beeville, Texas. This was acquired from five feuding siblings in uh, March of 2019. The, the parents had unfortunately passed away and the kids did not know how to run it. They were running it into the ground. Um, this one had, um, it had high delinquency. It didn't have a website, uh, didn't, you know, rent U-Hauls. That's a big self value add in self-storage is renting U-Hauls. Didn't have all kinds of stuff that it needed to optimize the facility and increase income. So uh, they actually had it on the market with a local residential realtor for five and a half million, but it was acquired for 2.4 million cash. Uh, it was upgraded, appraised for 4.6 million just four months later in July of 2019 and sold a little over a year later for 4.6 million. So that had a really nice return on it as well. Now, I don't want to tell you just the good stuff without telling you the bad. This is the worst deal. This next one is the worst deal our fund has invested in. Um, and this is North End self-storage. Unfortunately, it was in St. Paul, Minnesota. Nobody could have predicted that the police would be significantly distracted in St. Paul in 2020 with all the civil unrest from the unfortunate, horribly tragic incidents that happened there and COVID and everything else. So this property was sold for a slightly higher number, but once you took all the expenses and everything else into account, this one lost eight and a half percent. And we were the largest investor in this as well. So in my mind, what What's nice about this is having a fund investment, you know, being part of a fund, we were able to reallocate that capital into something more profitable. And honestly, we didn't miss a beat. As you can see, it was sold around the same time some of these other properties were sold uh, in, you know, end of 20, beginning of 2021. Um, this next case study is a mobile home park. It's actually MHC means manufactured housing community, fancy word. We did not invest in this property, unfortunately, but um, this is a company we invest with that we found later. So they acquired this in 2010 and 2013 in two parts for 900,000. And it was recently refinanced in September of 2021 with a value of 9.27 million. One of the great things about mobile home parks is there are 43,000 mobile home parks in the U.S., a huge percentage, 80, some people say 90% are run by mom and pop owners, and there's nothing wrong with that, but they typically don't have the capital or the desire or the knowledge to improve these parks and to maximize income and value. Here's an example. Uh, we mentioned Southland Mobile Home Park. This one had 311 spaces, but 50 were vacant. Well, I mean, for the previous owner who was actually um, an individual person living four states away who hadn't visit, hasn't visited there in at least four years when it was sold, for her to spend $40,000, $60,000 per space for 50 spaces to bring in mobile homes to sell, it was just a daunting task. That's a huge task for anybody. But a company like our operating partner, well, they could pull that off. 
And that's why it's important to invest in my mind with somebody who can pull stuff like that off. So by adding, you know, some, I, and by the way, he wasn't, I, I mentioned that my partner, Matt had done some of the five big things he planned to do. He hadn't even done that one yet, but the, the potential is there. And by filling 50 more spaces without even increasing rent, the, um, increased value of the park would be probably 5 million more. And that's somebody, somebody else we know is actually doing the heavy lifting on that now. So I told you about this one. Here's another uh, manufactured housing facility in Utica, New York, purchased for 2.8 million, refinanced for 4 million uh, just a year later, cash flowing at 25% in uh, five years after that, and then refinance with a value of 6.8 million in September of 2021. Unfortunately, we did not invest in this property either. So that's a mobile home park. We love self-storage. We love mobile home parks. And we also love light industrial. I uh, want to show you, uh, this is an example. We didn't know that light in that, excuse me, industrial parks have so many mom and pop owners, but a significant percentage of mom and pop of, of light industrial is owned by mom and pops. And so this is the kind of improvements. I mean, a lot of times their parking lot stinks, their signage is terrible, their roof leaks, their evergreens, uh, their landscaping looks like it came out of the 90s because it did. And anyway, this top one is how one of these facilities looked at acquisition. And this bottom one is the same facility after it had been dressed up by our operating partner. So this is a property. Uh, this is one of the properties that they acquired. This is not the same one. This was acquired April, 2016 with an projected internal rate of return, bottom right in the blue of 16.5%. It was purchased for 8.3 million and it was sold about three and a half years later for 15.9 million, uh, almost doubled the price per square foot. Um, and um, the uh, actual occupancy, check this out, went up from 55 to 100%. Rents went up from 62 cents to 68 cents per square foot. And so not a huge increase in rent, but um, the actual internal rate of return on this instead of 16% projected was 26.7%. And folks, I want to be clear. A lot of this, these increases we just saw on these last seven or eight case studies, part of them was just being timing the market right. And that, I mean, is also known as providence or luck or serendipity. The market just went north for a long time. I mean, from 2009, when it was at its bottom in March of 2009, the properties were actually, real estate was at its bottom in February, 2012. Um, but uh, from there to 2022, things just went straight north. The cap rate just continually compressed. The demand for these type of properties went up. And as Warren Buffett said, yes, the rising tide always lifts every boat. but Someday that tide will go out and then we'll see who is swimming naked or skinny dipping. And so that's is what we're seeing now. We're seeing a lot of 
operators who did, you know, a lot of great returns for their investors uh, who are now being exposed as skinny dippers. So I see, and, and one of the main ways people are being exposed as skinny dippers is by taking, they took on floating rate short-term debt and now they have to refinance. Well, not only are their debt payments double what they were, and that's uh, an approximation, of course, but let's say their debt payments went up from like 3.2% interest to 6.5% interest rate. So that significantly increased their debt payments, but there's something more deadly or as deadly that happened to the, that's happening to these folks right now. Their lenders are saying, okay, you had a rate cap of, let's say, 4%. Good for you. Well, you've got to renew that rate cap in just five more months, or you've got to refinance this property in just five more months. And we're going to make you, yes, the lender can do this, page 52 of the covenants. I made that up. But seriously, the covenants say they can make them increase their reserves. One of my friends has a $1,000 a month reserve for rate caps. He just got told that he has to increase that 1000 a month to not 2000 or $5,000, $89,000. And his debt payments just went up by double. How's he going to do that? He's in trouble. I mean, I don't think he'll lose the property, but a lot of people are going to. Wall Street Journal last week just had an article on folks losing their multifamily properties. There could be a bloodbath ahead. And um, sorry to be negative, but I just want to throw that out there because, you know, like I said, it's really good when you can make these improvements like the ones on the screen and make these profits. But it's even better when the market's going with you. When the market's going against you, you've got to, these type of improvements are even more important. I'm a student of Warren Buffett. Warren and Charlie, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, they said they've never once, this is hard to believe, in all these years of working together, like 40 plus years, they've never had one meaningful conversation about how the economy impacts their acquisitions. They say they are completely uh, immune, not immune, but agnostic to the economy. They do not care if it's going up or down. They just want to see if it's a deal they can get as a good deal. And these are the types of things that this operator, these operators are doing. They're, they're finding good deals in any market. This last quick case study is in uh, Las Vegas. This is the interior of the office on top. And there it is on the bottom. There's the upgraded interior. This is the in. Uh, the interior of the warehouse space on the top. And this is it after it's been improved by our operating partner. So those are the type of things they do. Uh, this one, there's a number of improvements done. I won't go into over into all this since I just hit some of these cosmetic improvements. They spent a million dollars on deferred maintenance, like HVAC, parking, roof, et cetera. This one uh, was acquired in May of 2014, sold in November of 2016 for um, 15 million acquired price, 22 million on the sale price side. This one had a projected internal rate of return of 18.9%, but the actual IRR was 36.7%. Hey, one thing I want to do, if I didn't already... Cause if I didn't already uh, act like a doggy downer, I'm going to do it even worse now. Hope Liz is okay with this. Liz, hope you're okay. 
So I want to talk to you about something near and dear to my heart for about one minute before we wrap up. Did you know that if you took the record profits of Apple, General Motors, Starbucks, and Nike, added those record profits together and doubled that number, you would find out about the average annual profits from human trafficking, according to the U.S. State Department. It's a massive problem. And since we started talking, since the breakout rooms, hundreds and hundreds of people have been sold or captured into slavery. It's hard to know what to do about that. But we, uh, when we see a size of an issue like that, we want to figure out what we can do. So we have actually uh, gone out and vetted, just like we do commercial real estate deals, we've vetted uh, the best operators we can find. And uh, this nonprofit called AIM at aimfree.org, you can go there yourself. Uh, they put the bad guys behind jail in Cambodia and Belize, and they actually uh, free and bring life and hope and healing to thousands of victims. We have helped raise $380,000 in the past 15, it's actually 16 months now. And uh, we donate 5% of our own ongoing profits to AIM. So if you want to get involved, you can go directly to them, or you can reach out to us and be part of our matching grant. If you want to put up at least $1,000 or more, you can reach out to us and be part of our match that we do every Giving Tuesday after Thanksgiving. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, you can do that at um, Wellings Capital. Dot com. You can email us at info at wellingscapital.com, or you can get a free special report on RV parks, another one on self-storage, another on mobile home parks, and we have more at wellingscapital.com slash resources. If you want to talk to me, you can get on my calendar uh, at that link right there.